Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. You know what I'm about to say, but please don't skip forward. Please listen to me. The Tortoise Shack is a completely independent media platform with no ads, no sponsors, nor do we want them. We do not want to have to pull punches. We do not want commercial interests who we would feel in our gut won't be too impressed with some of the tone of our conversations that we have. And we want to be able to go places like we did this week with Spice Bag and Pattern Up the Two artists behind the crack zone posters and the conversations that that sparked we want to be activists and we want to keep pushing forward and the only way we can do that is if you put your hands in your pocket and you throw us the price of a fancy cup of coffee and maybe a scone once a month on patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack the link is at the top of the podcast you're listening to right now it's the easiest bit of activism you can do think of it as your way of of creating that little bit of space so we can have those mics on and the conversations like the one you're about to listen to keep happening. I know you're probably sick of hearing me say it, but without you, it doesn't happen. We need you to pay it forward and keep this free for everyone. So one last time, click the link. It says patreon.com forward slash tortoise Thanks for listening, sharing, liking, recommending us to your friends. I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn, and delighted to be joined on the podcast today by Dara Turnbull, who is the a research coordinator with Housing Europe based in Brussels, and he is an Irish um, economist, and some of you might remember him for his starring in the primetime a uh, special on housing, which I think was last year, if my memory it could have been the year before, but it, it dissolves into COVID um, uh, time warp. But he did some has done some fantastic research on um, the housing situation in Ireland, but also across Europe. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation and, and for Dara to enlighten us all in terms of the solutions from Europe as to what we could be and should be doing in Ireland. And he also... Um, has just published a report called Delivering on Housing in Ireland, which is um, available to download on the Housing Europe website. So, Dara, thank you so much for coming on Reboot Republic today. Thank you very much for having me. Um, Great, uh, I have to say, to talk to someone who knows housing inside out as well and is really, um, has been producing some really, as I said, fantastic uh, research in terms of your kind of analysis of what you presented in that report we might start with that um, and talk a little bit about your analysis of uh, and the the I suppose data you've produced and analyzed in terms of giving a picture of where housing is at in Ireland and then we might go on to uh, be great to discuss a couple of the solutions you think and then kind of you know the experience from Europe what is what can we learn from Europe so maybe if you go first with the uh, the I suppose the big the big findings in the report sure so maybe just to begin I take a step back and kind of give you some of the context behind the report so actually the report mm. was commissioned by uh, Barry Andrews who I'm sure many of the listeners know who will be an MEP for Dublin um, but it was commissioned kind of via him through a pool of funding that's available for research from the European Parliament, uh, and he's from the Renew Europe Parliamentary Group. So basically, the brief that, that came to us would have been to 
try to firstly get a sense of how the housing situation in Ireland is today, mm. and then also trying to put that within a broader European context, because I think it's very easy um, within any European country to, to see very well the problems, but to not maybe look outside of your own national border to see, okay, is that a unique problem or is that problem kind of more systemic coming from you know international factors like the, the availability of financing, the availability of labor and that kind of thing. So trying to really see how Ireland actually uh, relates to other comparator countries within the European context to see where the overlaps are, where the differences are, uh, where Ireland performs well or not. Um, so in the report, we we first begin by looking at the, the specifically Irish context kind of in isolation. So um, we go through a number of different areas within that. So we look at, for example, recent delivery of new construction um, and whether or not that has been adequate in the Irish context. Uh, we look at um, households who are unable to have their housing need, need met. So it could be, for example, people who are homeless, uh, young people who are kind of still stuck at home. I know you've talked a lot in the past about the stuck at home generation. Mm. Uh, and indeed, they they feature prominently in the report. Um, we also look at the issue of housing affordability, um, which is always a very tricky issue because it's hard to say if someone is spending a certain amount of their income on housing, is that housing really affordable or not? Well, it kind of depends and and so on. But regardless of that, we kind of get into that in the report and look at the the general trend we've seen over the past 15 or 20 years in Ireland. Uh, and then finally, and this is something which is often overlooked, unfortunately, when we talk about housing, which is actually the performance of the houses that we live in. So are we living in homes that are well insulated, for example? Are they warm? Are they at a high standard? Uh, and all of that, again, leads back to uh, housing affordability, because, of course, if you have a low income, and you also live in a home that's kind of poorly insulated or poorly maintained, that's going to add additional pressure to you in terms of your utility bills and maintenance and so on. So that's kind of the four areas that we look in uh, at the Irish context. I don't know if, if you want me to go into more detail yeah, I, on, I think on those it would individually. Be interesting yeah. to hear. Yeah, your analysis on each of those four headings sounds really interesting. The first one in terms of are we delivering enough and what are we delivering now? Yeah, so are we delivering enough? Uh, the answer clearly is not. Uh, and uh, none of the reports, if you, if you look at the report itself, I kind of outline why I think that's the case. Um, and I also kind of back that up by reference to other people who've looked at this topic. And indeed, kind of it's agreed across the board, whether you look at the, the likes of the Central Bank of Ireland, the SRI, um, the housing needs and demand assessment that the government itself kind of supports, or even other people like, uh, like Ronan Lyons at Trinity College. They would all kind of come to the general same conclusion that if you look at how many homes Ireland ought to be building each year over the past 10, 15 years or so, uh, and then ask what Ireland actually has been producing, basically there's kind of a big shortfall there. So, um, and what's interesting actually within that is there is a shortfall, but what we what we show in the report actually is that the shortfall is not kind of across the board. And what I mean by that is um, private development of housing has fallen below the targets that were set out, for example, under uh, Rebuilding Ireland initially and now under Housing for All. Uh, but actually, if you look at the the impact of the social sector, so that could be local authorities, approved housing bodies, or kind of the public-private cooperation with Part 5, that is actually over-delivered versus what had been outlined within government policy and government strategies. So there is a general under-delivery, but that isn't kind of a uniform. So we are seeing that the private sector, the private sector is underdelivering, and the public sector is probably playing more of a role than even the government itself had been anticipating. 
Um, and what we kind of outlined in the report is that there are very good reasons for that. Of course, when it comes to, for example, local authorities, that's a direct branch of the state. Approved housing bodies, again, they're not a direct branch of the state, but they are kind of, let's say, an arm's length uh, branch of the state. And they, the government does have a lot of capacity, let's say, to influence them because they want to deliver new homes. So, of course, if the government provides the funding, then they'll uh, do their best to deliver. When it comes to the private sector, the issue is that they are private for-profit institutions. The government does not control them. Um, it can do its best to try and provide different funding schemes or tax breaks or whatever reliefs uh, to them to develop new homes. But at the end of the day, um, they're under no obligation to actually deliver those new homes. And that's effectively what's played out in Ireland in recent years. The fact that the government is trying its best to stimulate new development by the private sector and the private sector hasn't been delivering. Now, I'm sure the private sector will tell you there's many reasons for that. The fact that the, the goalposts seem to be changing every few years with, with different legislation and planning guidelines and all the rest of it. And I think all of that's probably fair. But the, the fundamental issue is that the government, if it wants to hit its housing targets, and this is what we argue in the report, it should be leaning more on the actors that actually does control, which would be social housing bodies, and maybe um, less put less of an emphasis uh, on the private sector, which kind of hasn't been delivering and over which the government has limited influence. Yeah, and I think that in, in terms of the framing of what's happened, um, essentially the state has um, stood in and bought and pre-bought tr a lot of the private market housing. And, you know, I've been arguing this for, for many years that rather than directly delivering itself or playing a much greater role in directly delivering, in a way they've <laughs> they've cheated to a certain extent in, in, in building up social housing, which is obviously a positive. We want more social housing. But the way in which they've done it is essentially bought it off the market. And in a way, they have um they have essentially, you know, been part of locking out you know, other uh, householders who would normally be buying this housing in the market, but they're essentially paying to giving developers, you know, forward financing to a certain extent and buying it off them. And so it's this very strange situation, which does go back to, as you say, that they've on the one hand been trying to stimulate the market, but on the other hand, sourcing their social housing through the market as well, that same market. And and developers have gone with with local authorities and and housing bodies because they have bought in bulk on and it's less risky than selling to or buying to uh, selling to home buyers who who can't you know afford purchase on a bulk scale and also can't pay what the state is paying yeah i mean i think turnkey developments particularly by the approved housing bodies have been very important in recent years but actually if you talk to some of the people in the AHB sector, what they'll tell you is that that really works very well for them in many instances. Because, for example, if you are uh, producing homes in that way, the AHBs, of course, they're subject to public procurement rules and which can take a lot of time and effort and, and so on um, and are open, open to appeal. If you basically get a developer to set up turnkey social housing, that kind of is a way of circumventing the public procurement rules, meaning you can kind of speed things up. Um, and it also means you can access land which uh, otherwise is not currently publicly controlled. So you can, you can basically onboard privately owned land for the benefit of delivering 
social and affordable housing. So I, I, I take the point or understand the point, but the fact is a lot of the turnkey projects that have been developed by HBs, um, many, many years of planning went into those. So it's not the case where they kind of came along at the last minute and gazumped a lot of first-time buyers. Typically, two or three years worth of planning would have gone in to that project, and that kind of always would have been the plan in mind for that particular piece of land would have been to develop it as a turnkey project for an AHB because, again, th- there are benefits to doing that for the AHB sector, particularly uh, in terms of the speed of delivery, where they can deliver homes, where you know there might be parts of, of Dublin or other cities where there's a lack of publicly owned land that they, they can access. So this kind of helps to make sure they can build uh, new affordable housing in areas where maybe they otherwise wouldn't be able to do it. And what's particularly interesting at the moment, uh, and one thing we mentioned in the report, is that given higher interest rates and the ECB are increasing interest rates, the, the rationale for the likes of uh, build to rent, for example, maybe is coming into question a bit more because if you're an investor and maybe you get a, about a 4% yield, net yield on your build to rent apartment that you're building in Dublin today, well, you can probably get about 3% or 4% yield on a government bond uh, and that's inherently res- less risky and kind of less difficult to manage from your point of view. So I think we're going to see that kind of turnkey uh, development happening more often, which is probably good, as you said, because it helps us to deliver more social and affordable housing. Um, and it also means that where you do, for example, have land which has planning permission, you basically, the AHB or the local authority whoever, or the land development agency can kind of step in, provide that financing, and the project can kind of go ahead very, very quickly. Whereas if you're starting from scratch, you have to buy the land, you have to do public procurement, all the rest of it. That can take three, four, five years or even longer uh, to develop out. So actually, I think I think there is a lot of mutual benefit for the state and for the owners of land, for example, in taking that kind of turnkey approach. Except that you're working on the basis that um, the state has to pay the costs that developers, um, investors have paid and want to expect the profit from. So it's actually a much more expensive form of delivering housing. And when you're delivering the likes of, for example, affordable uh, housing like cost rental, that that can be very problematic when those when the rents then are based on the costs of the development and that, you know, and, and to, you know, in terms of explaining to listeners, the, the turnkey development, some of them mightn't be familiar with is the idea that as, as you can, you were explaining more or less that the state or um, a housing body, which is, you know, funded uh, by the state would essentially, as you say, at different stage might get involved in designing or developing, or a developer might be part building or part started a development and come to them and say, look, we have, um, and there's been different government schemes around this, we have whatever, 100 uh, houses or apartments, and we're going to finish them in two years' time. Do you, you know, would you be interested in forward purchasing and buying them and you get them essentially turnkey developed? Um, And there's different levels to which the social housing body is involved in, as I said, accessing finance or designing or developing. But you are essentially, and obviously it depends on the scheme, but can be caught in a situation by where you're essentially paying market rates for everything uh, and it makes it a more costly form of delivery. Yeah, I mean, you've probably seen more figures on that than I I would have. Um, 
but I think some analysis that I've seen said that if you look on a kind of per square meter basis, for example, I know Dublin City Council had a report on this, was it last year maybe, uh, where they kind of looked at three different ways of delivering uh, apartments, multifamily buildings, one by the local authority itself, one by AHBs through uh, turnkey, and they went through the private sector or, or through part five. And I think they found that actually in those cases, the turnkey development was cheaper per meter squared than even the local authority was able to deliver itself. And now some of that comes down to perhaps resourcing a lot of local authorities, for example, mm. maybe wouldn't be uh, in ter- terribly well equipped in terms of the staffing, the expertise and so on to kind of deliver, deliver those kind of multi-apartment buildings that maybe are needed in certain parts of the country. So maybe there is kind of um, a price they have to pay for their relative lack of, ex- of experience and so on. But I, I'm not, yeah, so I'm not sure it's necessarily the case that the public would be getting bad poor value for money. And I think if you put it next to, for example, the long-term leasing agreements, for example, um, it definitely is much better value for money because at least the state under the turnkey process actually owns the asset. So it isn't the case where there's a leasing it for 20, 25 years and then the residual yeah. value remains with the the private owner. At least the state is kind of buying something which hopefully will provide benefits kind of many generations into the future, which tends actually to be the kind of the approach that's taken in most European countries where, okay, you invest today, but you know that 50, 60, 70 years into the future, that's a quality built home that will continue to deliver value for future generations. So, you know, yeah, I, I take I take the point, but I'd, I'd push back slightly on it in terms of, I think it probably does deliver good value for money, especially versus other options that potentially could be pursued, like leasing and so on. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And when you compare it to that leasing or, you know, and, and HAP, for example, the rental subsidies, it is absolutely, you know, much better value for money. Um, I just think yeah, that there's a danger that when the state um, is essentially subsidizing the market um, and obviously you are delivering social housing, but it's it's not, again, developing the capacity within the state itself to deliver um and also within within housing bodies um but th- in terms of that wider question of the gap and you're saying you know okay there's been provision of social housing and again you know there there has been over the last maybe you know 2 years but again as i say most of it's been bought from the market um but we are dealing with you know a deficit of you know over 15 years of not delivering you know and longer uh, sufficient social housing um, but in terms of the gap of affordable housing, what was your analysis on that? Where are we situated in that? So we don't go into, at least not in this report, we don't go specifically into the gap in affordable housing. We look at the overall gap in housing. But if you consider the fact that most people who are not having their housing needs met tend to be people on lower incomes, for example, or younger people uh, or new arrivals to the country who just simply don't have the the financial means or the connections or whatever it might be to access housing at the current market conditions, then we could say that a large amount of the under delivery of housing probably should be going towards that cohort of people who are being locked out of housing at the moment. So um, taking some rather conservative figures from the Central Bank of Ireland, for example, and kind of running some projections off that, just between 2011 and 2022, we probably should have built at least 345,000 new homes uh, in Ireland. And again, that's probably quite a conservative estimate. I think the the actual number of homes that should have been delivered probably was a bit bit higher than that. 
Um, and I think the census figures that we had recently kind of showed the population growth had been a bit more robust than the, the central bank, for example, had been uh, forecasting in its model. Um, so we should have built about 345,000. Uh, as it turns out, we only built about 163,000 over the same period, which meant that we had a shortfall just between 2011 and 2022 of about 180,000 units. So that's kind of the general shortfall in that period. And again, we could say that the majority of that housing should be for lower income groups and younger people who are the ones who can't access the housing that is available at the current conditions. And in terms of, did you put a figure on how many you think they should be delivering per year? No, we, we again, we don't go into that um, in this particular report because, well, one thing we do mention is actually trying to estimate how many homes should be built every year is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Because, for example, even if you take the Central Bank of Ireland or the SRI or the government's own um, housing needs assessment tool, they're all based on the best available information when those tools are developed. Mm. So, for example, in the 2016 census, we had pop certain population dynamic figures and so on. They were used within those models by government agencies, ESRI and other researchers to develop their assessment of how many new homes were needed per year. Um, but now we know the population growth, thanks to the 2022 census, we know the population growth has actually been much higher than anyone had really been anticipating, meaning that um, the number of homes needed to be higher over the period. So actually that figure I gave you of 345,000 homes between 2011 and 2022, to the lower end of what actually probably should have been delivered, if you kind of look at it as a range. Yeah, and I suppose the, the thing, the question then is, does the housing for all targets in, include those in them? Yes. So the, the current housing for all targets are also based off what we thought was going to happen in terms of population growth from the 2016 census. Now, again, population growth had been stronger than, than anticipated, and that's before you also add in the additional arrivals from from Ukraine, for example. So basically, that's kind of meant that the government, as far as I'm aware, the government is currently working towards a midterm review, or not even a midterm review, but kind of a, fir a first stage review of Housing for All. And I think that within that, we will see revision of the targets. Now, how they're going to hit those targets, because there are many constraints constraints on labour market, I don't know. I think one one key issue, which which we do mention in the report, um, and the kind of the low hanging fruit is probably tackling the vacant housing issue that can really help to bring on stream um, a lot of homes. It won't be a silver bullet. I mean, we still will need new construction, um, but it's maybe something that can definitely be a bit. The government could be a bit more proactive, probably on vacant housing, um, as a very short term measure to try and kind of free up some homes that are that are currently, uh, yeah, not being used their potential. Uh, what do you think is that that is obviously a really, you know, a significant area, the issue of vacancy and dereliction. What do you think should be happening there? Well, I think I think the government really has to try to firstly understand how many vacant homes are in the country. Because if you if you look at the census figures, if you talk to on post, if you um look at, for example, the work that's been done by the Heritage Council with the Collaborative Town Centre Health Check program that they ran a couple of years ago you get three different sets of figures in terms of how many vacant homes are in the country. So I think mm. um, the, first, the government definitely needs to firstly kind of nail down, okay, how many vacant homes are there in the country? 
Uh, one way that you could do that, and it's something that we suggested in the report, and it's something which has become a lot more common in the last two or three years in mainland Europe, uh, will be using utility bills to try and assess that figure. So, for example, if you have a home and you can see that there's no water being used or no electricity being used or gas, whatever it might be, that might be an indicator to somebody somewhere that that home could potentially be vacant. Now, it could that home could be vacant for many reasons. Someone could be gone into a care home. Um, or they could have some other issue that that means that it's not really vacant, it's kind of a temporary vacancy. But if you kind of assess that data over a longer period of time, it can at least give you a, an indication that maybe um, people from local authorities or on posts or whoever it might be could be sent out to kind of assess whether those homes really are vacant. Uh, I know the CSO actually did, uh, in fairness, them do a report on this, was at the beginning of this year, where they tried to look at ESB uh, data that they had access to to try mm. and make that kind of a comparison. And they, I think they said about 4% of the homes nationally or 4.5% of the homes nationally were vacant via their estimates. Yeah. Um, but it would be it would be good to kind of understand that. And, and then once you've understood, okay, these homes are vacant, then you need to understand why are they vacant? Are they vacant, as I mentioned, because uh, of personal situations that are very difficult for people that they've had to leave their home Oh, or because maybe they're, you know, an older person who's gone into care or whatever it might be, or are they vacant because basically the owner is choosing to leave the home vacant because they see some uh, advantage for them in, in, in doing that. Um, so basically in the report, we outlined a number of measures about how you could potentially tackle, tackle vacant homes. But at the end of the day, if someone is choosing to leave their home vacant, which is different from where they're not choosing to leave the home vacant, but they have, have an issue. If someone's kind of choosing to leave the home vacant because, you know, it's a way of hiding assets or they're just kind of not really bothered to bring it back into use or whatever it might be, then the government needs to kind of bring forward measures that can, let's say, <laughs> politely cajole them into, into bringing the home back into use. Because in a society where we do have record levels of homelessness, we do have many people who, who uh, young people, for example, and migrants and so on who are coming to the country who need decent, affordable homes. Can we as a society really tolerate people kind of just sitting on their hands and where they do have homes that could be used? Now, many of those, many of those homes would need to be renovated or works need to be done to bring them back up to a decent standard. Uh, and in the report, we kind of do outline some measures that could be taken, for example, to, to, to deal with that. Now, what sort of things do you suggest? <clears throat> So, for example, there was a recent report from the um, the Chartered Surveyors in Ireland a couple, couple months ago that maybe you saw that kind of said that I think it was about half of the homes in the country that are vacant um, basically can't be brought back into use because the cost to bring them back into use would be higher than the actual value of the property post renovations mm -hmm. and this kind of thing. Now, I, I, I would disagree with their analysis because one of the things they said is that, I'm just making up rough numbers here, but if you have a home that's currently vacant, that costs, I don't know, 70,000 euro. And then another kind of 100,000 needs to go into it to bring it back up to a decent standard. Then, but so that's 170,000 all in. Uh, maybe the value of the property at the end of the day would only be 140 or 150,000. So they have, they said there's a viability gap. But for me, I think they've, they've overlooked the fact that maybe the 70,000 that you had to pay to buy the vacant home in the first place is too high. Um, because there shouldn't be this viability gap. You know, the cost of buying the vacant property should make sense once you kind of pair up the cost to bring it back into service. So I think the reason that maybe there is a viability gap is that it's too easy for people to hold on to vacant properties because the taxes 
that maybe the punitive taxes that you would have to pay for having a vacant property are too low, or maybe they're not well enforced, or maybe you can escape detection as actually being the owner of a vacant property, whatever it might be. Um, so that's kind of one thing would be to kind of look at the at the tax question and look at how maybe you could, again, as I said, politely encourage people using different measures to bring their home back into use. But then once um, they decide, okay, I will sell the home or, or I will renovate the home and rent it out, whoever it might be, then they have an issue because if you go to a bank and say, okay, I need a hundred grand to renovate this home, um, the bank will, will, won't look at the the value of the home once it's been renovated. They look at the current value of the home, which might be again seventy thousand. So why would I lend you a hundred grand versus an asset which today is only worth seventy thousand? So there's this kind of financing gap which exists, which is one thing yeah. mentioned by the charter surveyors. Um, but there's a really good scheme for this actually for coming from Estonia. Um, where they have a, 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 an institution called Credex, which is established uh, many years ago to provide low-income home loans for, for kind of young people and so on who wanted to, to buy property. But also, um, if you think about Estonia, as in many countries in the former East, um, they inherited very a very low-quality housing stock in the early 90s from the previous um, socialist and communist regime. So basically, Credex is there as a, as a loan guarantor. So what effectively happens is you go to your bank in Estonia, and you say, "Look, I want to renovate this property. Um, uh, I need a loan." The bank will will give the loan, but that loan is then guaranteed by Credex. So basically, Credex says, "Okay, look, give the loan to this guy. He's going to re- renovate the property, and we think he's going to be able to repay you. If he can't repay you, we will basically make you whole." So it kind of completely de-risks the lending from the point of view of the lender, and it means that they can then free up that that capital that's required for somebody to renovate the home and bring it back into use. Could we do that in Ireland? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and how, how would it work? Well, one one thing that could be looked at actually already in the Irish context, rather than setting up a brand new credit institution like they did in Estonia, would be looking at something like InvestEU, which is kind of one of the uh, EU's funding instruments that we mentioned in the, in the report. So InvestEU has very much the same principle. It's about de-risking private lending. So again, if you were to uh, use InvestEU funds in the Irish context or something like InvestEU, you know, somebody sees the vacant property they want to buy, wherever it might be, they go to the bank and the bank says, well, hang on, we're not going to lend you that money because you want us, you want us to lend you 100 grand, but the, the property is only worth 70. That doesn't make any sense. You can say, okay, well, InvestEU, which is a guarantee fund, is going to guarantee that loan. So in the event that I can't repay you, don't worry about it. That loan is guaranteed. And that basically de-risks the 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 lending for the for AIB or Bank of Ireland whoever it might be, so that could be a very short term measure, or Ireland could just basically set up a new public guarantee fund which um, is modelled on the Estonian approach and basically just says look put two or three billion into a into a public guarantee that then AIB and Bank of Ireland or whoever it might be know that they'll be made whole in the event that Joe Bloggs can't repay his um, his loan that he took out to to renovate the home, so it's actually a very simple approach. There are many kind of public guarantee funds which exist for many purposes all around Europe. So I don't see why Ireland should be any different. And in terms of this idea, because the the other one of the AIB is a public bank as well. <laughs> so why couldn't AIB do it? Or or the credit unions, they're not essentially a public bank as such, but a public AIB is publicly owned. It could do it. It's publicly owned, yes, but it does still have to uh, adhere to credit lending kind of rules. So basically, if if AIB is lending you money to buy a house or to set up a small business, whoever it is, 
they'll assess the risk of that lending activity. And then basically they have to hold back capital. And that's not them who decides. That's kind of banking rules under Basel III uh, and EU directives and so on that kind of dictate to them how much capital they, they need to hold back for lending activities. So I understand it's a public bank in it is in it's publicly owned, but it's not a public bank as would be understood that terminology within most European countries. So Ireland is actually unusual at the moment where we don't really actually have a public bank in terms of um, a publicly controlled institution, which which sole focus is to invest in uh, social capital, social infrastructure, and so on. We don't really have that. And again, maybe maybe I'll jump ahead to this while, while we're on it, but that is one of the big recommendations that we have in the report, uh, is that Ireland actually does set up a, a public bank. Uh, and France, where I'm talking to you from today, is the, the model that we put forward. So in France, for over 200 years, they've had a, an institution called the Caisse de Depot, which basically is a publicly controlled bank, although um, it's considered to be off book for the purposes of, of public uh, uh, debt calculations and so on, which yeah. is always good in the Irish context where we were obsessed with the um, yeah. amount of room <laughs> off that we have in the, in the budget. Off balance sheet. You actually take something on your on your state books and, and be responsible for it. Yeah, go on. E- exactly. So, so there's a joke in France that when you're born, you get two things. You get a birth certificate and you get what's called a livraya. So a livraya basically is just a savings account. Um, my daughter, who is almost two years old, she has a livraya account, for example, where we put a few bob in every month and that's kind of mm. saving up a little nest egg for her future. But basically, it's a very simple uh, procedure. You go to your bank, whatever bank it might be, you say, I want to open a livraya account. They open, a, they open one on your behalf, which is managed through the bank and they get a small fee for, for doing so. But basically, it's like a small savings account. So you put in whatever 10, 15, 20 euro that you might have at the end of the month. You put it in there. You, you kind of squirrel it away. Uh, and the, the the state is the one who actually um, pays you the interest on that account. And, and the interest you get is actually quite generous. So, for example, today on my Livre uh, account, which kind of works effectively the same way as, as my current account does, uh, I'm getting 3% interest, which is much, much higher than I'd be getting on my the current account offered by my French bank. Yeah, and what the what what the French government then does through this institution, the Caisse Depot, it pools together all that livret A financing, which I think is about six hundred billion or give or take at the moment, maybe even higher. Um, and basically, then that money is lent out at very competitive rates. For example, for development of social housing or other public infrastructure, roads, schools, hospitals, whatever it might be, all that money is collectively pooled and then lent out. So actually, when I go buy social housing developments here in France like new social housing developments, you'll see a sign up outside with the CDC, the, the Caisse de Depot logo. And I kind of feel as someone with the Livraya account, not a sense of ownership, but I kind of see, okay, well, somewhere at a very small micro micro level, the money that I'm saving every month is actually kind of helping to finance that project and make it real. And it works. It, it's incredibly successful. Like I said, the, this, the, this Livraya model has existed in France for over 200 years. Uh, it's never once been in default. It's never once n- not being able to pay uh, the interest rate to, to the borrowers and so on. Uh, and in a typical social housing project in France or a typical year in France, about 70 or 75% of all the capital needed to develop and renovate social housing comes from this fund. That's so incredible. It's, 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 actually like, it's actually like these um, kind of almost like a Kickstarter campaign. You know, everyone everyone chips in a few bob and then, and then we deliver something but, great at the end of it. But where would we find two or three billion to seed fund a bank like that? We have no money. No, we 
Well, no, I mean, we do. I mean, the NTMA could. I'm could, joking. Uh, we're, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're about to uh, run a 12 billion surplus that uh, they're going to pay down our debt with and put into some future bank bailout fund. And um, I was being absolutely facetious purposely with that yeah. comment because. No, but, but I, I, th- I think honestly, you would something like the French approach or the Estonian approach that I mentioned before. I mean, we're not talking about huge sums of money to kind of get the, get this thing off the ground. Mm. Um, and the impact it could have in terms of on the, the Estonian approach, unlocking vacant housing and the French approach really, um, I mean, I, I know a lot of affordable housing providers would say that money isn't necessarily an issue, an issue for them at the moment, but um, it's good, I think, for Ireland to diversify its funding mm. in terms of social affordable housing. So the French approach definitely could be um, a huge driver of that kind of diversification that, that we need to see, but also importantly, making sure that if we are building new housing estates or, or new housing schemes, that they come along with the the necessary infrastructure. So it's all well and good to have a, a greenfield site out near you in Maynooth or wherever it might be, but if you put up 100 or 200 homes out there and there's no infrastructure to get you into Dublin where maybe you're working or whatever, wherever you need to go, it's not exactly a viable option for most people and most families probably won't be happy to live there because they want to have local amenities, local infrastructure. Uh, so the French model is actually very ingenious because it, it it funds the housing, but it also funds the infrastructure. Okay, which is absolutely essential. And, and also back to the tackling the vacancy and derelict, you know, vacancy and, and dereliction, which I assume you're including within that because a big problem is we don't count the derelict buildings either, you know, on any significant scale. And dereliction is actually one of the biggest issues in our, you know, regional towns, in our cities here. Um, When you look at Ireland in terms of our housing, our overall housing approach, um, we really are an outlier in terms of the the scale of the housing crisis um, and the way in which, you know, there's been a confluence of factors that have brought us here, but largely there's there's different reasons, but really our private market and private housing system is, is essentially, you know, broken since the crash. And, you know, we've combined with this abandonment of public housing um, along with never really properly developing public housing has meant that we're in this utter, utter um, kind of, um, it's like this perfect storm of combination of of bad policy um, and failures that means the type of action that's needed to address the housing crisis, in terms of my analysis anyway, is way beyond anything else needed in Europe because we are so badly gone wrong and that therefore the state has to intervene in ways that are much, much greater than anywhere else. And it's also because we're a small island economy. You know, we don't have, you know, that cross, uh, even like companies, construction companies that can move from one part of Germany to one part of France or even those things we need it here. You know, people can't just move. They're on an island. Um, And for me, it seems, you know, I've made the proposal for a national, um, along with Phil Murphy and others, you know, a national sustainable uh, housing agency that would directly hire the construction workers, all the professions needed, because I can't see us, you know, if we continue on with trying to stimulate the private market, trying to see, can we get, you know, the housing associations do a little bit more. We're all in this constrained labor market and, 
it just we're just going to be going around in circles unless we do something transformative. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, so it's probably two points I'd pick up on. The first one is I I don't think Ireland is unique in terms of facing housing challenges. I think I didn't say ha- scale- not facing housing challenges. Yeah, no, no, I no. Said no the but scale yeah, of our the crisis. scale, yeah, yeah. No, indeed. I, th- I think I think every country has huge housing challenges. They're not always the same housing challenges. So um, I'm sure if you talk to people in, you know, I was talking to someone from Lisbon there recently, for example, and, you know, Lisbon is an unbelievable housing challenge that I'm sure people in Dublin would even go, wow, that's, you know, for example, we did a piece of work there about two years ago, which showed that the average uh, monthly disposable income of a, of a kind of a young couple in Lisbon is actually less than the average rent of an apartment in Lisbon. So, I mean, Dublin is is bad, but we're not the case where actually, even if you spent 100% of your disposable income to rent an apartment in Dublin, you would be able to do it. In Lisbon, even 100% of your disposable income wouldn't be enough to, to get an apartment. So, I mean, there are definitely pockets of unbelievable challenges in housing. And, and I, I would put Ireland kind of, yeah, fairly near the top of that list on many fronts. But we have different challenges uh, and opportunities that other countries don't have. I mean, um, I'm actually doing a piece of work at the moment on the issue of vacant derelict housing. Um, and, you know, within that, for example, in Eastern Europe or in Mediterranean countries, you have crazy situations where there's a lack of available housing, but yet you have huge amounts of vacant housing. But it's just that they're not in the right areas. They're not the right quality. There's huge internal migration from rural to urban and so on. Uh, Ireland, I suppose, in some way, because we're a small island, you don't have to live in Dublin or Galway or Limerick. You can kind of live outside the city and still not be too far from the city or not far from anywhere else. Um, so, yeah, the scale of some aspects of Ireland's housing situation are definitely worse than others. But then other countries would probably look at Ireland and think, oh, at, le- at least they don't have X, Y and Z that we're dealing with, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suppose what, so within the report, section two of the report actually tried to see that. So, OK, we looked in section one at the at a high level, what's going on in Ireland in terms of affordability, supply, the the performance of the buildings and so on. And then we try to see, okay, can we ground that within a broader European context? Um, and we we kind of looked at a number of KPIs. So for example, we looked at the number of young people who are kind of living at home. And again, we found that Ireland, sorry, I should say that the this is all done versus three comparative countries, which were Austria, Denmark, and the Netherlands. And yeah. whenever possible, they're capital cities. So kind of uh, Vienna, uh, Copenhagen, and um, Amsterdam. So if you look at the number of young people, for example, in Ireland living at home, way higher than than our the comparison in our peer countries. For example, I think about 41% thereabouts yeah. um, of Irish people aged 25 to 34 are still living with their parents, um, which is just and that's completely abnormal. And that's 10 years. Yeah, so I mean, if you look at the at the comparative countries, so Ireland's forty one percent of twenty five to thirty four year olds living with their parents. Uh, the Netherlands is eleven percent. Austria is eighteen percent, so actually a little bit high in Austria. Uh, but Denmark is only four percent, which is yeah. Even I was shocked by. It. But actually, one of the reasons Denmark is so low is one, there's cultural factors where people really want to claim their independence at a very young age. Um, but also there's a huge amount of uh, government support for young people to leave the family home. So, for example, they have a very comprehensive network of what they call youth housing, which is effectively a form of social housing, but specifically for young people. Um, and also, they, the state will provide you a kind of a form of basic income or kind of income top up 
that will help you to leave the family home. So there is a huge focus in Denmark, for example, on people kind of becoming independent as as young as possible. Um, another another thing that we look at in terms of trying to compare Ireland to the peer countries uh, is the availability of social and affordable housing. So it, if you ask me, social affordable housing in Ireland, it clearly is not sufficient. When I mentioned before that we, um, you know, we have 41% of people aged 25 to 34, most of whom, by the way, I didn't mention are actually full-time workers. You know, they're not people who are unemployed or students or whatever. They're mostly full-time mm-hmm. workers, but they're still living with their parents. So that's, that's a huge I've uh, talked to factor. quite a few of them on this podcast. Uh, yeah. yeah <laughs> talked about it. I, I know, I know. And even, even a lot of my peers kind of back in Dublin, many of them are still living at home with their parents, you know, which is just incredible. Um, but anyway, um, so w- one thing I say is that Ireland trade does not have enough social affordable housing. The government needs to do more through housing for all and other schemes to deliver social affordable housing. Um, but having said that, we also don't, by European standards, have a small social affordable housing stock. So about uh, 8.6% of the of the housing in Ireland is either by local authorities or private housing bodies. Um, so that, again, that's not tiny. If you look at countries like Italy or Spain, you'd have below 4%. Even Germany has uh, quite a small stock in comparison to Ireland. But if you look at the peer countries, um, you see that Ireland actually is kind of small compared to those countries. So I mean, look, in Vienna, about 43% of the housing is social or affordable. Uh, in Amsterdam, it's about 40%. Uh, in Copenhagen, a little bit lower, but still about 20% of the housing uh, will be social or affordable. And what's really interesting, and it's something we mentioned in the report, there's been a really good piece of analysis done by a research institute in, in Austria, which actually shows that when you deliver social and affordable housing, it isn't just the people who actually live in those homes who benefit, it's everybody who benefits. Why? Well, for one, people who live in those homes who have lower rents, they have more money to spend at the end of the month, and that stimulates the economy. So if you have a disposable income, you can go and spend money in the shop or the cafe or the restaurant or whatever it might be, and that, that helps create employment for local businesses. The other way it helps is that actually by having genuine competition, let's say, in the housing sector where there's sufficient social affordable housing to compete with private housing, um, it basically helps to, to drag down prices of private housing. So even if you're renting privately or owning privately, you benefit through lower prices because of having a significant social affordable housing sector. And that's back to my original point about the problem with the turnkey approach. It doesn't bring down house prices because it's not actually adding an additional supply to the market. It is essentially taking supply from the market. And this is, and I think it's a fundamental problem that when the state is essentially and has been, and housing policy has been for the last decade about reinflating house prices, maintaining high house prices, and has not had the objective of reducing house prices. And, you know, when we look at it, you know, there's a lot of, to be honest, I get very frustrated because it's like, there's a lot of talk about, you know, we need to deliver social housing and deliver affordable housing. And yes, we're doing this and doing that. But when you peel it back, the uh, largely the model is still fundamentally based upon trying to, as you said earlier, stimulate the market, trying to main, keep the banks essentially solvent. And it is about the financial institutions. Um, 
And when you look back at NAMA, you look back at, you know, and you are right to point out that actually Ireland has a lot of potential and a lot of positives. And there will be a lot of countries very jealous of Ireland when, in particular, you look at the land we have, the land within urban centres. Um, and, you know, we are such a small country and with proper transport, our regional towns and cities could be opened up, you know, rural areas. Um, and so we have massive potential. And in part, that's what really frustrates me as well. But it is back to that. There's still a dominant thinking of the market in Ireland in terms of housing, as far as I can see. And, and I think that it's almost the social and affordable bit is, is almost tokenistic add on um, rather than being a fundamental commitment like it is in Vienna um, and Austria and, and seen as core. Um, but with the other piece where I get the hope from is that I think particularly, you know, younger people in their 20s and 30s and even across the generations realize that actually, you know, we do need public housing and we do need affordable housing. And I think that's the value shift that has gone on and is underway. And that's where I see real hope coming from. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I was born at the end of the 80s. And when I was a kid growing up in Dublin, you know, people would mention the flats, right? And the flats were what? The flats were social housing. Yeah. You know, who, li- who lived in flats? Kind of low income people. And you say, you talk about Ballymun or you talk about parts of the north inner city, wherever it might be. And they they really were heavily stigmatized. And there was really kind of a negative perception. And even, I mean, I'm, I'm not too far from the north inner city where I grew up um, in Jumkonja. But, uh, you know, they really were stigmatized and people had a very negative perception about them. But I think, um, I think, Definitely, as you said, younger people, people of my generation, and even older people, you know, people who maybe have kids of my age who who can't access housing, who are part of that cohort of, of people living at home uh, when they should be probably establishing their own homes and so on. Um, I think there definitely has been an attitudinal shift where people realize, well, hang on, actually, maybe social housing is something we, we need as a public good. And even if it's only a stepping stone for me as a young person or, or whatever it might be, to potentially becoming a homeowner in the future, that's still something that I'd like to have and I think that we should be spending more money on. So I, yeah, I am optimistic because I think, um, you know, thanks to people like you and other committed activists and uh, researchers in Ireland, that the narrative of the flats or whatever it might be has changed and people really think about um, home as a, as a need but also home is a public good that we should invest in collectively in order to get, as I gave an example of, of Austria, where kind of everyone benefits. So, um, yeah, it, do, it does give me hope absolutely as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, I think that it's great the work that you're doing as well in terms of pointing to, you know, the solutions and ideas from Europe, because we are at a point where, you know, people are looking for solutions and really, you know, looking for ideas and how could this be done? Um, and I think the more and more that people can, we can educate and inform people about these ideas, it's like, yeah, there are solutions here and we could be doing this. And that will translate into, you know, the Department of Housing having to take them on and whatever government is in place having to take them on. Because when people get behind ideas and start going, yeah, why can't we do that? And, you know, and, and the ideas you've put out there are really, I think, practical. Um, and so I do feel hopeful on that basis. But I do think there's there's a danger that you know that's policymakers 
to and governments say, oh, look, we're doing it, we're solving it. And away you go, no, you're not, you are at a certain level trying to address it, but you're not solving it. And and the danger is people just accept that unless you point out, well, here are things that could actually really solve it. And and um, you know, I think we could we could talk for a long time, Dara, um, but we, we might give our listeners a break. Um <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on. We'd love to chat to you again um, and get more on the the solutions from Europe because I know our listeners will be really, really interested in that. Um, So we might get you back on soon if you're up for it to go into a bit more detail of all the the things that have been done across Europe around this. Yeah, well, I might actually just mention on that very, very quickly to wrap up. Yeah, absolutely. um, every, Every two years, we have something called the International Social Housing Festival which is kind of, as the name suggests, the International Social Housing Festival. We try to bring together practitioners from all over the world to come somewhere, to kind of have it out, to debate, to share ideas, to share inspiration, to share problems or whatever it might be, and, and maybe have a pint of some food at the end of the day. Um, so we just finished the last edition in Barcelona. We were in Helsinki before that, but actually in 2025, the International Social Housing Festival is coming to D- Dublin. So uh, we're going to bring all of the world's best kind of practitioners on social housing, affordable housing issues, all to Dublin to have it out and really try to to inspire local policymakers to do something genuinely different. And as you said, kind of maybe to get away from the current paradigm or the historical paradigm in how we deliver housing in Ireland and maybe think about something completely new, completely different that we haven't done in this country before, which has been done successfully, maybe for a very long time in some other part of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's fantastic. Um, I did hear that it's coming to Dublin um, in 2025. And I think we should really push to have um, big events, particularly aimed at young people and people locked out um, to educate and inform and involve them in that rather than just being aimed at policymakers. But actually, I think there's a huge thirst for people to find out about, you know, what is happening across uh, these other examples of, of social housing um, and public housing for all, rather than just being a narrow stigmatized um, approach that we've had. And we we still face massive challenges in terms of the um, management of existing social housing. And I've just done a podcast with um, tenants of social housing in two areas of Dublin and Ballymun uh, and David House. And I really encourage listeners to have a listen. Like it is truly shocking the the failures of our local authorities to actually manage uh, and respond to maintenance, basic maintenance requests of tenants. And, and I do think it comes back to that undervaluing and failure of policy and society to value public housing um, as, you know, a public good and necessity, a public service. And I think that's part of the broader change needed. But listen, Dara, thanks so much. If people want to read your uh, report, which I really would recommend, it's available on housingeurope.eu. Um, you can download it. And um, you haven't released it in audiobook format yet, have you? No, I, I think people after listening to this podcast will know that <laughs> having to listen to my voice for an hour or two hours is, is more than enough. So I won't I won't read a full 81 or 82 page report uh, to them. They can they can do it themselves and enjoy it without a nice cup of coffee or something. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, I said love to have you back. And um, uh, yeah, great to chat. And um, I really hope that uh, your summer goes well and you enjoy a bit of a break. You too. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dara. Dara Turnbull there has said you can download his report, housingeurope.eu. Uh, really important in terms of uh, learning the lessons from Europe. So much we can do. 
And within um, the anger and rage we have at this uh, omni shambles of a housing crisis, there is hope and there are solutions. And that's what we really need to promote. Um, so thank you so much, listeners, for hanging in there. And if you can support us, go over to patreon.com forward slash tortoise track. We are independent media produced by Tony Groves of tortoise track media. Help keep this show on the road. Sign up if you can. You get the podcast first into your uh, email before they go out generally everywhere. And as always, we love your feedback and uh, comments, um, good or bad. And we actually hit um, last uh, few weeks ago half a million downloads of the Reboot Republic podcast, which is really, really impressive. And I don't think it was my mother sitting on Spotify downloading, downloading, downloading. No, it wasn't. It was lots of you. And thank you so much for for really sticking with us. It's been uh, an amazing uh, journey and we're still going strong. So thank you so much. And we will talk to you all very, very soon. 